This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Hello, this is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where every week we take on the big financial and business headlines from around the world. I'm Nick Howard. Thank you for joining me. With me is Oanda's Senior Market Analyst, Craig Earnham in London. Craig, let's kick off with the non-farm payroll figures. These are the all-important monthly job numbers from the US. 245,000 jobs created in November. Quite a bit of a drop from where we were in previous months. What are you making of it in terms of the US economy? So, I mean, I think they're probably in line with what you would expect. Um, yes, the, the forecasts were slightly higher, but I mean, we've got to remember these are notoriously difficult to forecast. These aren't ordinary times. These aren't ordinary jobs reports where you think, say, is it 200,000 or is it 230,000? And the forecast vary. It's, is it 200,000 or is it 700,000? Uh, and you, you're trying to pick up data at a time when um, almost kind of like the definition of unemployment's not even what you would normally expect. Obviously, the standard definition is, but when you've got people who are furloughed and you've got people on various different support schemes, uh, I I think it's always going to be very difficult to uh, to to try and uh, anticipate, uh, but I, but I think there is some forgiveness for that in the markets. We're still not seeing massive responses to the stimulus plan to the uh, to the jobs numbers themselves. Hmm. What we saw was pretty weak hiring uh, under the circumstances. Probably the weakest month actually since uh, since the bounce back began, um, uh, and we've seen unemployment tick a little bit lower, but the participation rate also ticked lower. So that's probably responsible for for much Qu- of that. Quite considerably, actually, 400,000 people out of the job market entirely. Yeah, exactly, and that always skews the data in the other direction. In terms of you, you, in terms of it has if the if that number falls, it tends to have a, a, what appears to be a positive impact on the actual un, unemployment rate. Um, so it, it it can be slightly deceiving just to look at the unemployment rate if you don't look into the details around the participation side of things. Because obviously, a drop in the participation rate is a negative. So if that causes the unemployment to decline, then you've got to read it as such. Mm. Uh, but like I say. We're in a difficult period. We've got to remember as well that this job's data was collected in the middle of the month. So um, given the restrictions that we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks and the the growing number of uh, COVID cases, of uh, hospitalizations, of of fatalities, uh, you imagine that uh, activity is going to have slowed over the course of those two weeks as well. So the December jobs reading is probably going to give us a more accurate um, interpretation of what the economy actually looks like and what impact this second this most recent wave has actually had in terms of the labour market and the overall economy. Uh, so it, it's not great numbers, but it's kind of what you would expect given everything that's happening. I think the most important takeaway from today was always going to be the the psychology of it going into these stimulus talks, which I know we're going to talk on separately, but it, it, we, we, it feels like we could have been in one of those weird environments right now where bad news is good news, good news is bad news. What is it that the markets want more than anything? Well, they want the Federal Reserve to do more bond buying into his monetary policy further. And they want Congress to agree a new stimulus bill. And if we'd have seen a really good jobs report today, would it jeopardize both of those things? So almost the kind of what you want today is kind of a jobs report almost where it's it kind of accurately reflects what you think is happening in the in the economy uh, and encourages, uh, it, it accelerates the need for more stimulus, which is beneficial for the markets, but also the economy as well in the medium term. Well, let's talk about that stimulus then, because obviously we still have you know, a couple of months until Joe Biden is in the White House. This is that weird transition period where an outgoing president 
can, as we're seeing from President Trump, try to lay some last minute traps while the rest of the economy is still ticking along. Where are we in terms of stimulus at the moment? So the uh, I think the, there is talks underway. There's Earlier this week, we saw a bipartisan group uh, of lawmakers put together a proposal which seemed to lie somewhere in the middle of the two that had been put forward by the Republicans in the in the Senate and the, the, the Democrats in the House. It equated to, I think it was $908 billion. Uh, so probably a bit closer actually to what the Republicans were proposing. And it seemed to offer compromises, both in terms of some of the key priorities um, on both sides. And it's actually got quite a warm response from the Democrats, saying it's a good kind of liftoff point, which I think the market's taken a lot of encouragement from. On the other side, Mitch McConnell wasn't quite warming to it, but what he did say was that that he does believe that some stimulus is needed. And I think that was almost the important point for today. You kind of wanted to find that sweet spot on the jobs report between not wanting to de-incentivise providing more stimulus from Mitch McConnell, given his comments last month that this is evidence that we don't need that much stimulus. Um, but at the same time, you, you don't want it to obviously be too 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 drastically bad. But the fact that he's suggesting that he wants to tie any stimulus plan to uh, the uh, to the, the funding plans, the spending bill, uh, which is needed by this time next week in order to avert a partial government shutdown, suggests that the timeline is brought that much closer and hopefully means that we can get something over the line where we tick both boxes and we can go into the festive period knowing that all of those programs that are going to expire at the end of the year that have been supporting households and businesses are going to be extended uh, uh, and that we're not going to see a partial government shutdown just to make matters even uh, even worse. So hopefully uh, we can see something over the next week and I think markets are taking some optimism from that. Unfortunately, we've watched Congress for so many years uh, and it's not just congress we've seen it here in the uk we've seen it uh, in the eu right now uh, with their own 2127 uh, budget um, these things don't always go according to plan and there seems to be big hurdles to overcome so the markets are looking quite optimistic at this stage and hopefully this time next week we're talking about uh, a deal that's through to the new year are you worried that the delay in this stimulus package for the US, I mean, we were looking at the, the job figures a moment ago and the number of people that are out of the job market. Um, I mean, this is money that's going not just to individuals, but to small businesses, etc. It means that there are, I suppose, smaller pieces um, to be picked up and put back together by the incoming Treasury team um, led by uh, Janet Yellen. Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean the the, the initial part of the, the the term was always going to be taken up with trying to repair the damage that the coronavirus has caused. Obviously, they're also coming in with a vaccine in place, so that's um, that that is beneficial. It means they're focusing on the recovery rather than say the fight uh, that, that there's been over the course of the last twelve months. Um, and there is going to be some damage as a result of the fact that the, the, the stimulus wasn't agreed earlier. We've got to remember we were talking about this, can we get a stimulus plan before the summer recess? And it's now December and we're still talking about the same thing. So there is going to be some damage that's been caused in the interim. There has been some emergency programs put in place to try and tie it over, but even they expire at the end of the year as well. So. Uh, I don't think there's. I don't think there's been an enormous amount of damage, but that doesn't mean that people haven't been worse off. And we know what that means. That means businesses, small businesses, racking up more debt, which they may or may not be able to shoulder come this time next year. It means households maybe um, being worse off. So potentially, especially the poorest, the most vulnerable in society, racking up more debt. Um, these are the things that are always more difficult to judge because it's not just necessarily 
uh, immediate job losses. So we will obviously we'll be able to view this a lot more in hindsight. But the most important thing right now is that something's agreed to that by the time the end of this year comes, that people and businesses feel secure at least for the next two or three months. What did you make of the the backlash in the US um, and in Europe to the UK giving the first approval to this uh, to the Pfizer BioNTech coronavirus vaccine this week? It felt very political, which I didn't like, if I'm honest. Um, I, I was very surprised that you, I mean, obviously, Dr. Fauci has come out and he's qualified his uh, statements and uh, reinforced that the UK um, regulator uh, is uh, thorough and is to be trusted, etc. And they just have different procedures, different practices. Um, but I thought it was a very strange thing, given that this is a vaccine that's been created in a record amount of time. And one of the biggest hurdles towards delivery is going to be public trust uh to cut for, for for people to come out and question because the uk regulator has approved it first whether they're being thorough enough seals like a very political uh and, and a very strange message uh to be sending undermining the trust in the uk when you want people to be taking it people's lives are literally uh on the line just to take the counterfactual do you think there is any credence in europe and the us's view that countries should have moved in lockstep to uh to also preserve that public trust potentially but these 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 bodies don't necessarily work together and they're all going to have their own uh they're all going to have their own procedures and ways and means of doing it would the us have held back another week if europe was taking uh, a little bit longer to approve of course they won't they, they, they'll also get this approved as quickly as possible as per the, the practices which they currently have in place they wouldn't wait for the for europe um so why would uh why would anyone else uh, act in, in in such a way i think it was almost like a political protection message though they didn't want to be criticized by their own public why is it that the uk are rolling them out why is it that we can see people getting the vaccine and you're dragging your feet and you're not approving it i think it was that kind of message but by going on the defensive what they actually did was send a, a really dangerous message mm. uh, to other people at the time when they need to be aligned on the the safety and the trustworthiness of both the companies producing the vaccines, but also those regulating them. has to be said that it doesn't look as though businesses, markets, consumers, etc. have shared that um, uh, perhaps pessimism from these kind of experts. It feels as though there's a, a wave of optimism. Absolutely. And uh, we're still continuing to see that. We're only seeing smaller gains on a day by day basis at this point. But even on Monday, when uh, when the UK regulator MHRA uh, approved the Pfizer vaccine, we saw a nice little bump up in the FTSE even then. So clearly, we are still getting those little jolts higher every time something positive comes through. There's still the other regulators who will approve Pfizer. There's still the Moderna vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine and any others which produce some positive results over the next month or two. So these are uh, markets that are riding a wave of positivity right now. My only uh, caution is that these moves are getting smaller the momentum is starting to wane uh, i'm just wondering whether there's just so much positivity priced and at some point the profit taking is going to kick in the obviously that that's easy to say rather than when but uh, and there's still certain things that can continue to give them a kick high like say more regulatory approval more positive results um uh, the fed the ecb over, over the next uh, two weeks uh, providing additional stimulus, Congress uh, approving a stimulus package and averting a government shutdown next week. These are potentially all market bullish events. So there's still other things that can give them a jolt higher, but you kind of need some of these things to start coming out now. Otherwise, we may start to see a little bit of profit taken in because there's just so much positivity f running through these markets, which are also kind of happy to turn a blind eye to 
what's happening on the ground right now with the various restrictions, lockdowns, etc. Well, okay, well, let's go from those positive noises to uh, the Brexit talks, um, where I know this is your favourite topic, but um, we've seen voices raised, should we say, after the, the silence of the last few weeks. Over the last few days, we're now seeing more um, criticisms from each side, um, more harsh words being spoken. France now threatening to veto any deal over... Um, uh, claims that they're being treated unfairly in terms of um, fish. Um, the UK accusing the EU of bringing in last-minute requirements in terms of policing any um, restrictions of the deal. Now, I've got to bring in that I spoke with our Brussels-based experts on the business breakfast, and he felt that this was the last-minute histrionics before compromise and before a deal was reached. Where do you think this is going? Yeah, I think I agree, to be honest. I think, don't get me wrong, the silence has been bliss, hasn't it? The last three or four weeks of hearing very little noise suggested to me that the hard work and the graft was finally happening, the years of back and forth, the public this, the public that. It was finally behind us and we were going to get down to the nuts and bolts of the deal and we were going to start to see compromise. So I, I really enjoyed the silence. It made me think that, maybe more optimistic that a deal was going to be uh, done, but now it has come back into the public domain. We are starting to hear more of these noises starting to come up via the usual channels as well. Um, and it does just seem it's one last little bit. I mean, I know we said this on the, I said this on the podcast last week, is France really going to veto the entire deal uh, because it doesn't have the access that it wants to fishing waters? I would be extremely surprised. Um, is the UK really not going to back down on any of these final issues? No, they want a deal. I would be extremely surprised. And I know maybe I just have too much faith at times in in, in, in these people, but uh, I just I can't see anyone coming out of this well, uh, barring with the select number of people in the UK who wanted a no deal from the start, I can't imagine in a broader scale people coming out of this well um, with a no deal, and that's both in the UK and in Brussels. So uh, while I just think this is the last few contentious issues, kicking up a fuss last minute, try and draw any possible concessions you can before the signatures get put on the paper. We've got the meeting, uh, the EU summit next Thursday, the leader summit, they're going to be hoping to have something in place by then that they can uh, vote on. They've obviously got the EU budget as well, dispute to to deal with as well. So I can imagine that's going to be quite a uh, lively, uh, a lively old summit. Um, so I think the next three or four days is going to be really, really crucial. I think we're going to hear a lot more from these talks. And I'm hopeful that by early next week, we're talking about a deal and we can start to move on. Yes, so we understand that Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission, are speaking by phone this weekend. Hopefully something gets unlocked. Um, you mentioned the difficulties that the EU is finding agreeing its next seven-year budget. Hungary and Poland both vetoing the current budgets because of uh, caveats relating to the uh, the rule of law. Is this having any impact in terms of uh, markets and elsewhere, or is it a purely political situation at the moment? It's not having much of an impact at the moment, but let's get to the end of the year. And if we're still having these discussions, then that may change. Because from from what you see, from what you hear, um, it, it, this is a very, very political thing. And I think Angela Merkel is going to be keen to uh, see out her rotating presidency by the end of the year and have this wrapped up. I don't think she's going to be wanting this to run on into January. Obviously, the difficulty with that is that all of a sudden the budget, because it's for 2021, becomes an emergency budget. That means that uh, spending is slashed considerably. And I think that's one of the pressure points they're kind of hoping for with Poland and Hungary, given that 
they uh, they are massive beneficiaries uh, of the uh, EU budget, the EU spending. I think for Poland, it's around three and a half percent of their GDP. I think for for Hungary, it's closer to five percent. So they are massive beneficiaries of the of the EU budget, and so I think they're hoping that the financial pressures start to catch up a little bit with the political uh, arguments as well. And then I think the other the other thing that uh, Hungary and Poland were really clinging on to is the idea that if they can hold this up for long enough, then the EU will cave uh, because it is the recovery fund that's attached to it. But already the, you've got the message coming from the EU side, which is there is other options, not ideal options by any stretch of the imagination, but there is other options where the 25 other member states can put a recovery package in place uh, in, in order to um, in order to avoid it becoming uh, caught up in the EU budget. And all of a sudden, you're looking at a situation where Hungary, where, where the leverage that Hungary and Poland appear to have is significantly lessened and it becomes an issue of if this budget gets to the end of the year and it's not being signed off, it's an inconvenience for Brussels and probably something bigger as far as Hungary and Poland are concerned. So the leverage very much seems to be with Brussels at this point in time, but I do think a compromise is going to be found. Maybe that's going to be text alongside the rule of law, stipulating exactly conditionalities and conditionalities specifically linked to uh, EU funds um, that's distributed to the countries um, uh, to get this over the line. And we've seen a slight softening, I think, from Poland as well uh, towards that. So it's probably going to drag on a little bit, but it's not. it doesn't appear at least to be a risk. It's probably just going to be a very lively debate come uh, next Thursday. Let's close with an agreement. So OPEC and Russia agreeing to increase oil supply from January 2021. This has actually boosted the oil price to a nine-month high, but actually, presumably for next year, we could see the oil price um, coming lower as supply increases. So hopefully this is the first compromise of many this month. Uh, so this is the the um, OPEC plus uh, partnership. So this is the OPEC countries combined with Russia and a number of others uh, who contributed to this massive output cut earlier on this year of 9.7 million barrels. That was paired back to 7.7 million barrels over the summer. And the plan was to pair it back again to 5.7 million barrels as of January. But obviously, over the last month or so, things have changed. And what we saw earlier this month, well, earlier last month was the oil price plunging back towards around $35 a barrel, naturally um, creating some strain uh, within that group, um, raising questions about whether that 2 million barrel increase should occur in January or whether it should be pushed back by three months. And it seems to be a consensus that flexibility could allow for it. Now, what happened since then? It's that three vaccines were announced, and it's amazing how much that changes people's outlooks, both in terms of the economy and therefore demand for fuels, demand for like airlines, for example, etc. Um, uh, and that changed the demand outlook uh, as a result of those being announced, and the oil prices did surge. That alongside comments from various oil min- ministers from Saudi Arabia, Russia, and others that um, that we that they could could be flexible. But they, they could, the, the, the fine line was always going to be where are they going to be flexible and. Um, how is it that they're going to find this compromise? And the compromise they found is that production will rise by 500,000 barrels a day from January. Uh, so the same month, there's no delay on that on that 500,000. But the uh, hope, uh, which is what uh, Alexander Novak from uh, the Russian energy minister said, the hope is that by April that that will then rise to 2 million barrels. Um, and obviously that will be shared out amongst and the um, uh, uh, and that's the agreement that's currently been reached, but they are going to be month by month and review it because obviously we know that a lot changes month by month as it did now from a month ago. So I think it's a deal which has satisfied the members uh, of OPEC Plus. It's 
a deal that's satisfied the markets. Brent crude rallied just shy, I think it's one cent shy of $50 a barrel, quite a symbolic move, um, and, and suggests the market have taken it well, uh, that they, they, are, they are happy that it kind of removes some of the oversupply uh, that was would have been in the market and, um, and that it, it will do for now. Uh, as you say, though, then it comes back to next year because now we've got higher oil prices. We're going to have a higher output, and oil prices have also returned to a level when you would expect U.S. shale to make a comeback mm. and flood the market with more oil again. This is just the normal supply-demand dynamics in these markets. It could come down, but demand could also uh, improve more uh, next year. I think the group was also keen to, um, with regards to that U.S. situation, because obviously, if you uh, if they'd have just delayed their output agreement by three months uh, and the prices goes to 55, you're effectively handing the advantage then to US shale industry to start pumping more. And then in three months' time, oil prices could be at 45 million barrels again because the US has increased production by three, four, five hundred thousand barrels a day uh, and taken advantage of those price moves. And I think they were keen not to give the advantage away. So it's going to be a balancing act, but it's going to be a month to month thing now. And just as the outlook will change, you imagine that their their views will change uh, as and when it's needed. Craig, thank you very much for your time today. That's Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda in London. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. It's available anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Nick Howard. Join us again next week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.